Thanks, Joe. Appreciate that. As Joe said, we'll be in Hebrews chapter 9. We'll get there shortly. We're going to look at a number of different uh, texts this morning. Uh, for those of you that may be a guest with us, we are going through a short series, uh, summer seminar, uh, on the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. The five solas of the Protestant Reformation really capture uh, the gospel. What is the gospel? Uh, and help us understand it. They are would be considered first-tier theological principles or, or uh, truths that we need to understand and grasp and cling to. Uh, they, they really are uh, Mount Everest of theological doctrine, uh, and that's what it feels like each week as we've been studying them. We're, we're looking at the, just the tip-top points here of, of what the gospel is, and as you guys have seen and experienced each week as we've studied through this, there's just so much more that we could dive into and dig into that we're just not able to, but by doing this, we're hoping that we're rising, raising to the top everybody's, in everybody's minds the understanding of what the gospel is and the importance of it, and these five solas really capture that for us. So what are the five solas? The that Scripture alone, that in Scripture alone we find, we learn, we realize that through Scripture alone we learn and, and, and come to understand that we're saved by grace alone. And that comes through faith alone. Faith in what? Not in ourselves, but in Christ alone, as we'll look at today. And why? What, what does all of this do? It lifts our eyes to, the, to, to worship, to celebrate the glory of God alone. And so that's what we've been studying for these last few weeks. And this morning we're we're on Christ alone. Before we get into this, I really want to ask you two questions to kind of think about. Um, I want you to think seriously this morning. The first question is this, why are you here this morning? Why are you here this morning? Is it to sing some songs? Is it to rub some shoulders, network with some people? Is it to learn some more information? Why are you here this morning? And then I want to ask a second question. The second question is seemingly unrelated. The second question is, how do we solve the sin, death, and wrath problems that we all face? We've been talking for, for the last few weeks that we are pervasively sinful. The Bible teaches that. How do we solve the sin, death, and wrath problem that every one of us faces? Those two questions seem unrelated. Why are you here and how do we solve the sin, death, and wrath problem? But I would argue that your answer to the second question really determines the answer to the first question. It really informs and clarifies the answer to the first question. Your answer to the question, how do we solve the sin, death, and wrath problem? In other words, if the answer is by something I do, by something you do, by our own strength, by our own effort, well, then you have your answer for why you're here this morning. You're really here to worship yourself. You're really here to celebrate you. We should be singing songs about you this morning, about your strength, about your greatness, about your power. But if the answer is solved in Christ alone, by Christ alone, through Christ alone, in Christ alone, then we have our answer of why we're here this morning. It's to worship him. It's to celebrate him. It's to lift our eyes and our minds and our hearts and our lives and everything to him. And those two questions are important for us to consider. We're really going to camp out on the second one this morning. And so I want us to answer that question and get to an answer of that question. How do we solve the sin, death, and wrath problem? How do we 
reconcile this issue in our lives. We've been talking, as I said, about the pervasiveness of sin. We looked at it in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3 several weeks ago. And, and the question that we're asking, this is a question that the Reformation was asking, is how is sinful man reconciled to a holy God? How are we, who are pervasively sinful, reconciled to a perfect, righteous, holy God? How does that happen? How, how, can, how can we deal with the sin issue in our lives, the death problem? Paul says that we are dead in our sins. How do we deal with the wrath problem? Paul says that we are all children, by nature, children of wrath, that God's wrath is towards us. His, his anger is towards us. So how do we reconcile that? How do we how is it that we can gain his favor towards us? His, his, his face would be turned favorably, that he would be favorably disposed towards us. How is this resolved? How is it that we become forgiven of sins, alive spiritually, reconciled to God, and that God begins to look on us with joy? How is, what is the answer to that question? The biblical answer is, it's not you, and it's not me. That that we can't solve it. It's a trick question, really. How do you solve the sin, death, and wrath problem? You don't solve the sin, death, and wrath problem, but God has. And how has he done that? By putting forward his own son as a substitute, as a substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf. This is how we are reconciled. He is the solution. Jesus is the solution. So this is what began to become somewhat of a debate within the Reformation. And, and, and hear me say this, and, and we have a quote here that will kind of clarify this. Stephen Wellham's written a book on Christ alone. It's very helpful on this point. And what he says is that Rome and the Reformers, and what most scholars say, Rome and the Reformers did not disagree on the deity of Christ or the person of Christ. In other words, that, that Jesus was fully God, that he was fully man. That was not in disagreement. That's not the issue here at the point of the Reformation. The issue at the point of the Reformation is, are we saved by Christ alone or Christ and? Rome taught that we were saved by Christ and our sacramental activity. The reformers, through the study of the scriptures, came to understand, no, 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 we're saved by Christ alone. Look at this quote here by Stephen Wellam. He says, Rome and the reformers both embraced an orthodox or right-thinking, right-theology view of Christ's person. Yet Rome taught that faith alone in Christ's work was not the sole ground of our justification. And when we looked at justification, justification is the right standing before God, acceptance before God. Rome taught that faith alone in Christ's work was not the sole ground of our justification. Instead, we're justified before God by a combination of Christ's work plus our sacramental activity, our engagement in the Mass, our taking of the Lord's Supper, our participation in worship, all of these activities, confession, forgiveness of sins, these, these things that we do in addition to Christ's work. This is how we are reconciled to Christ. This is what Rome taught. And so this morning, I think it's important for us to understand what, well, what does the Scripture teach? What does the Bible teach? Is it by Christ alone that we are reconciled to God, that, we are, that sinners are, are forgiven of sins, that dead are made alive, that that we are reconciled and made right with God? Or is it by Christ plus something I do? Jesus and. And as Joe read earlier, 
the profound, amazing good news of Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12. Jesus entered into the holy places by his blood once for all to secure an eternal redemption. I think it's important for us to begin to unpack that and understand that. Now, to get there, we have to go backwards. Don't we always have to go backwards? and We have to look back in the Old Testament. Hebrews, really, many say, is the Leviticus of the New Testament. So we have to go backwards. And when we go backwards to begin to understand forwards, what we begin to see is that there was a sacrifice that was pictured and required in the Old Testament. And it was always pointing forward to something. And that is the sacrifice that was offered in the New Testament. And because the sacrifice was offered in the New Testament, then we have a decision to make. We must receive that sacrifice. And so that's what we're going to see this morning. The once-for-all sacrifice pictured and required in the Old Testament, the once-for-all sacrifice offered in the New, and the once-for-all sacrifice you and I must receive this morning. And so that's what we're going to look at. Let's look at this. Once-for-all sacrifice pictured in the Old Testament. God in the Old Testament, established the Old Testament sacrificial system. It kind of gets a little nebulous, a little scary, a little hairy in the Old Testament when you begin to study it. It's, it's a little difficult sometimes. We get to Leviticus, if you're ever in a reading plan, if you make it past numbers, you get to Leviticus, and you come to, the, to, to this book, and you're like, I don't understand. I'm not quite sure what's going on here. What is happening? Let's understand Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, man lifted his fist to God and said, I don't need you. I make a sufficient Savior on my own. I know what's best for me. And he takes the fruit, buys the lie of the enemy, and everything is broken. We're fractured from God. We're fractured within. We're fractured from one another. There's all of this brokenness. In Genesis chapter 3, while the juice is still dripping from their lips, God comes into the garden And he begins to address Adam and Eve, and then he addresses the enemy. He addresses Satan. In chapter 3, verse 15, we get what's known as the proto-evangelium, which is a fun, weird word to say. It's the proto-good news, the first good news. That's what gospel means. It's good news. The first good news in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 is this. God says to the enemy, I will put enmity or hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. It's important for us to understand, bruise is said twice there, that the enemy is, being, is the one that's being addressed. God addresses the enemy, and he says, you will bruise his heel. And that bruise in that context is you will wound him. You will wound the seed of woman. You will wound the one that's promised, the one that's coming in the future. But through his wounds, he will... It says, bruise your head. And that word bruise is used in a different context, and it means crush. He will gain victory over you. So there is a picture in Genesis 3.15 immediately of one coming in the future who will be wounded, and through his wounds he will gain victory over the enemy, over sin, over death. He will right all that's wrong. He will fix all that's broken. Genesis 3.15, Jesus is already being portrayed and pictured and displayed. Fast forward, you get to Leviticus, and God institutes a sacrificial system. The sacrificial system requires the sacrifice of a perfect, spotless lamb. The the sacrifice of animals, the blood of animals must be shed in order to, to temporarily give a right standing before God, between Israel 
and God. Leviticus chapter 1, verse 3, Leviticus chapter 1, verse 4, the, the, the priest by confession prays and places his hands on the sacrifice, and there's this transference of con- through confession of sin to the sacrifice, and through the sacrifice, the atonement or the atoning blood or the, the right standing with God is transferred to the people. There's a, an exchange in Leviticus 1 and in chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. And all along, it's pointing us forward to something. The promise is that through this, this, in Genesis 3, the man's wounds, there will be victory. And the promise in Leviticus is that through the shedding of blood, there will be the remission of sins. That something must die, something must be wounded in order for us to have right standing before God. And this, in this situation, in this context in Leviticus 3, God, this is what's amazing, God requires the sacrifice, but in Leviticus 17, 11, God's the one that provides the sacrifice. This is essential for us to understand, that in order for there to be right standing before God, there must be a sacrifice made. But when we get to Leviticus 17, 11, listen to what it says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So, so don't miss this. God is instituting the sacrificial system and God is providing the sacrifice. He's the one that requires a sacrifice and God is the one acting to provide the sacrifice. He's the one that requires the shedding of blood, and he's the one providing the blood to be shed. This is in the Old Testament, and all along, throughout the, like a drumbeat, it's beating throughout the Old Testament, all along, every page, every word, every story, pointing forward to the sacrifice that would be offered in the new. And when we get to the New Testament, we begin to see something, that this one has come. And this is where we begin to get to and understand the once-for-all sacrifice that is offered on our behalf. We've referenced uh, Paul's words in Romans chapter 3. I want you to hear it. I want you to see it. I want to read the text, and then I want to see a list of things that Paul's saying here. In Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 25, Paul says this. See if you hear something similar to what we've just said in Leviticus. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God, righteousness means right standing before God, justification, it has been manifested or made known or revealed. And it has been revealed, manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Although they have told us about it all along, there's a righteousness now that comes, a right standing with God that has come, that's been made known, that's been revealed now. Even though, and it's apart from the law, even though they've pointed to it. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And therefore, it's not there, but it's implied, all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, whom God put forward, in our fun word for the day, as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. 
This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. So let's look at a list here. I want you to hear everything that Paul has just said. See if you hear again what Leviticus said. The means of justification has been revealed or made known. It's apart from the law. It's in Jesus Christ. It's by grace. It's offered as a gift through Jesus. And then we get to verse 25. Next slide. Whom God put forward as a propitiation. Now that word propitiation we need to understand because it's the key here. It will help us understand what Paul is saying. Paul is saying exactly what Leviticus said. Propitiation is the means of satisfying wrath and securing favor. So what is Paul saying? God's wrath is, is upon us because we are sinners, because we lifted our fist against God, because, and we are dead in our sins. God's wrath is being poured out upon us. He requires a sacrifice, and he put forward the sacrifice. Who did he put forward? How did he, what was the sacrifice? His own son, Jesus. His own son, Jesus. God requires a sacrificial substitute, and God has provided that substitute. God put forward his own substitute to satisfy his own wrath. Do you see this? Do you hear this? Are you, are you seeing that, that because of our sinful condition, our rebellion against God, God requires a substitute and God has put forward a substitute and in the New Testament we're being told Jesus is that substitute. God is putting forward his very own son to die for you and I, to be our substitute. So how do we solve the wrath problem? We don't. God solves the wrath problem. God has solved the wrath problem. He put his own son forward to take upon himself the wrath of God. And by taking on the wrath of God, he gets our punishment. And the New Testament teaches we get his righteousness. How do we get that? By faith in the sacrifice. And that seems pretty intolerable to many of us. God put forward his own son to su- substitute and sacrifice, that, that's, that's just, that seems cruel. That, seems un, un, that just seems un, intolerable. Well, don't miss what the New Testament says over and over again. Galatians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says that Jesus gave his own life, that the Father willed, that the Father offered, and that Jesus signed up for the job, that Jesus put himself forward, that he substitutes himself. Read Philippians 2, 6 through 7. Paul reminds us that Jesus, though he was God, emptied himself, humbled himself, even to the point of death. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, the first half. Though Jesus was rich, and he's not talking about finances, he's talking about the inheritance of God, the possession of, of the identity of God, the, the, the wealth of relationship and, with God. Though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor. Why did Jesus give himself? Why did Jesus empty himself? Why did Jesus humble himself? Why did Jesus pour himself out? So that we who are poor could become rich. So that we who are empty could become full and whole and complete. This is why Jesus died. 
He willingly sacrificed himself. God put him forward. He willingly sacrificed. And he poured himself out. The, ha- the latter half of 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says that so that by his poverty or by his humility or by his emptying or by his pouring himself out, by his death, we could be made rich and whole and alive. And that leads us to our primary text for the day. The glorious, amazing good news of Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12. The answer to, are we saved by Christ alone, or are we saved by Christ plus a whole bunch of things that we need to do? And we get to the answer to why God offered his own son and why Jesus willingly laid down his life. Hebrews 9, 12. Jesus entered into the holy places by his blood once for all to to secure for us eternal redemption. I want you to see a couple of things from, from this verse this morning. I, I want us to, to walk through this and see a few things. First, Jesus entered into the most holy places. In verse 12, chapter 9, verse 12, it says that he entered into the holy places, and, and, and then down, and this is used figuratively here in, in 12, but down in verse 24, he, he says, the, the writer here clarifies, he's not talking about temples made with hands. He's not talking about the, the sacrificial system that, that, that man engaged in repeatedly, that the priest engaged in. He's talking about the once for all entering into the very presence of God. He says, verse 24, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies or pictures or shadows of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. That when Jesus laid down his life, he died on the cross, he was offering himself up to enter into the most holy place, not the temple, not the, the, the holy of holies, one time a year, which was the priestly sacrificial practice. No, no, he went into the presence of God to stand before God to take the full wrath of God on himself. So that when God looks upon us, he looks upon Jesus. We get his righteousness and he got our punishment, our wrath. The sacrificial system requires the sacrificial substitute. God put forward Jesus, and Jesus willingly died to be our substitute for us. He entered into the place, into the most, sacri- the, the most holy place. Secondly, he entered not by the blood of animals, but by his own blood. Do you see that in the text? In Hebrews 9:12, he didn't enter by the blood of animals. They had to offer sacrifices for everything, all the time. There was one particular sacrifice, the, the, the Day of Atonement, the, the singular sacrifice, and, and, and it had to happen yearly. And they went in, and there was blood everywhere, and it was nasty, and the, the animals were shed over and over again. The, the blood was shed over and over again. But here in Hebrews, we're told that Jesus went in not by the blood of animals, but by his own blood. God put forward the precious blood of his own son. What's greater in terms of blood, the blood of the animal or the priest himself sacrificing his own life? What we're being told here is that that he didn't offer simply another animal. He offered himself on the altar as a substitute. The third thing I think it's important for us to see, and this is where we, we get this idea of once for all, is that Jesus entered once for all. Now, I want to clarify what he's, what, what's not being said here is, is once for all mankind, which would be universalism. In other words, that just simply by his death, 
that, that everyone's saved automatically and everyone's clean. That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying here, what the writer is articulating, is once and for all. Meaning, Jesus' sacrifice is finished, it's sufficient, it's complete. It doesn't need help. It doesn't need a little extra additive. It doesn't need more. It is complete. In chapter 7, earlier in chapter 7, the writer says Jesus is not like the priests who go in and out of the temple making sacrifices regularly. In chapter 9, verse 25, he says that Jesus did not offer himself repeatedly as the high priest offered the animal repeatedly. No, their offering was annual and repeatedly. And why is that? Because it was insufficient. But Jesus' offering was singular. One time, once and for all, and it was complete. And why? Why did Jesus enter by his blood once for all? And why did Jesus willingly lay down his life? To secure for you an eternal redemption. Not a temporary redemption. Not a just this Sunday redemption. Not a only if you'll do these things redemption. Not a up until you fail one more time redemption. An eternal redemption that is complete and sufficient for all eternity. I'm not quite sure why people aren't backflipping right now. This is what Jesus has done for us on the cross for you and I to satisfy the wrath of God. Maybe it's because we don't like talking about the wrath of God. That feels really uncomfortable. To satisfy our sin condition. Maybe we don't like talking about sin, but that's what we are in, sin condition. We are broken. We are alienated. But Jesus died to reconcile us to God. He entered in once and for all to raise us up, to make us alive, to seat us at the right hand of the Father eternally, completely, wholly, It's completely sufficient. His salvation does not need anything else. This is why the writer of Hebrews can say, I love this verse, in chapter 7, verse 25, he says he's able, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. So we have talked about what the Bible teaches weekly for the last several weeks. We talk about it all the time, that we are pervasively sinful. It's through and through. It's, it's, it, it's affected every ounce of who we are. It's affected our intellect. It's affected our desires. It, it's affected our hearts. It's affected our emotions. It's affected our actions. It's affected everything that we are. We are sinful pervasively, through and through. What does Hebrews 7.25 say? Jesus is able to save us to the uttermost. Wherever sin may be found in you, he is able to cleanse that. To the uttermost, completely. Add to that what we just looked at in Hebrews 9.12, eternally, completely. He is sufficient as our substitute, as our sacrifice, to reconcile us to God, to receive on himself the wrath of God, to reconcile us, to forgive us of sins, and to keep us for eternity. This is why John writes in John chapter 10, verse 28, which you just sang about just a few minutes ago, that no one, I give them eternal life, Jesus says, and no one can snatch them out of my hands. Do you realize the joy of what that's saying? 
the absolute security and assurance of what's being offered to you in Jesus. This is why Paul can say in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This means that all those past sins that Satan holds up to you, they're forgiven in Christ Jesus for those who place their faith in Jesus, who are covered by his blood, who are covered by his sacrifice. Paul says that that God did what the law was incapable of doing. The law was able to bring us to awareness that we're sinners, right? Sometimes people ask, you look at the Ten Commandments, some people see it as a checklist. You know, don't murder. Didn't do that today, I'm okay, right? And some people look at the Ten Commandments as a checklist. We were never intended to see them as a checklist. We were always intended to see them as impossible. The problem is we look at the first nine and we forget the tenth one. And this is what says, Paul says, got me. It was the hook that, that, that sunk in my heart and I couldn't. In Romans chapter 7, I looked at all of the, the checklists, the Ten Commandments, and I thought I could keep all of them. But then I got to the tenth one about coveting. And that, that's not something I do outwardly. That's something I do inwardly. That's a heart issue. And Paul realized suddenly I have been looking at the law all wrong. I thought the law was something I was supposed to do. I saw a to-do list, a checklist. Instead, I now see it as something I can't keep. It's impossible to keep. And that's what leads him to Romans chapter 7, verse 25. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? What is Paul doing? He's, he's being crushed by the weight of his sin. He recognizes how sinful he is. And he's being crushed by it. And he's longing and looking for an answer. And then he says, thanks be to God in or through Christ Jesus. Jesus is the answer. He is the solution to my sin problem, to the death problem, to the wrath problem, to the crushing burden of sin and guilt. And that's what leads him to celebrate in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That the crushing weight has been lifted. I've been liberated and I'm free. He alone is able to keep us to the end. Will you humble yourself before this good news? Do you see this glorious good news? Is this your hope this morning? Is this what you're banking on this morning? Is this what you're hoping in this morning, trusting in this morning? Do you realize this is the decision you must make this morning? This is the wrestling match that we all must have. Am I trusting in myself for right standing before God, for the forgiveness of sins, to make me alive, to make me whole, and to satisfy the wrath of God? Or am I trusting solely, completely in Jesus and Jesus alone? So that's what leads us to this third point, final point. Is he, that, that Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice that must be received, acknowledged, Put, our faith must be put in. Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, Paul says, I do not, we looked at it last week, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. What's Paul saying? We, we looked at this last week. If, 
what he's saying is if we can add any works, then we nullify or cancel grace and we make Jesus' sacrifice insignificant and unnecessary. That, that if we are saved by Christ plus our good works, then we don't need Jesus. What we're ultimately saying is my hope is in me. My trust is in me. And therefore Jesus' sacrifice is unnecessary. So this is what leads Paul to say this in Galatians 5.2. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you, are, if you accept circumcision, which is another way of him articulating works of the law or merit-based right standing with God, if you accept, uh, accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. And then listen, I testify again to every man who accepts except circumcision, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Those are terrifying words. If we're saved by Christ plus our works, then what Paul's saying is you don't need Jesus and you must keep the law completely perfectly. You must be perfect through and through. Is that your hope this morning? Is that what you're presenting to God for why he should accept you, why your sins should be forgiven? I'm perfect. Look at what I've done. It's perfect. I've read the Bible perfectly. I love God perfectly with every single thought, with every single day, in every single way. I know. You haven't done that because no one has because there's only one perfect. There's only one righteous, and his name is Jesus. If we can add any work to Christ, then what Paul's saying, he is of no value. Secondly, if we go the route of law-keeping, we have to go all the way, and we have to keep it perfectly. So if it's not by works or law keeping, then it's by faith. And this is what we've been talking about last week and this week. If it's not by law, then it's by faith. How do we resolve the sin problem, the death problem, the wrath problem? We don't. God does in Jesus, putting forward Jesus as our substitute, and it's received by faith. And that's what leads Paul to talk about in Romans chapter 4. He uses Abraham. You know the story of Abraham? And he uses Abraham in chapter, Genesis chapter 12 as an example. In Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abraham. He says, I want you to leave your people, leave your family, leave your, your, your land, leave everything and follow me. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless the nations of the earth through you. And what Paul says in Romans 4, 2 to 3, says, For if Abraham was justified by works, or made right by God by works, he has something to boast about. He has something to claim, but not before God. And then he says this, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Notice it doesn't say when God comes to Abraham in Genesis 12, leave, come, follow, I'm going to do and bless and bless through you. He doesn't say, it doesn't say, Paul says, he believed in God. He believed God. He trusted God at his word that what he said is what he's going to do. Paul's later going to say that, that Abraham hoped against hope. Remember his condition. He's old. He, he, he's, his wife is barren. He's, he's leaving family, all of his circumstances. So despite circumstances, despite what looks obvious to, to everyone else, despite his family condition, despite anything else, he trusts God at his word that he's going to do what he said he was going to do. Paul says this is what faith is. This is how 
righteousness or right standing with God was counted or credited to Abraham. That's a banking term. Those of you that are in banking, you, you understand this. In finance, banking, accounting, credited righteousness. It was given to him even though it wasn't his. And it was given to him because he trusted God at his word. And this is what Paul says, how this occurs for us. Four five, Romans 4, 5. And to the one who does not work, you and I, who despairs of our work, who despite circumstances, despite everything, it looks like we should trust in our own ability. No, 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 despairing of that, but trust in him or believes him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. To the one who does not work, who despairs of their own work, who does not trust in his own works, but trusts, believes clings to, embraces, puts his full confidence in him who justifies Jesus, his faith is counted and reckoned and credited as righteousness. Do you, do you see what's happening here? So there's a once-for-all sacrifice that's pointed to. There's a once-for-all sacrifice that is offered on our behalf. And there's a once-for-all sacrifice staring us in the face. And the question is, will you trust that sacrifice on your behalf? Or will you continue to trust in yourself? We talked last week about the resume analogy. Will you continue to trust in your own resume or will you trust in the resume of Jesus? What is faith? It's looking and clinging to the once-for-all sacrifice that's offered on our behalf. I love this quote. Sandy Wilson writes for the Gospel Coalition and, and said this in some of their founding documents. If we have no righteousness of our own, then we must trust in the righteousness of Christ alone. This is what the Bible's teaching us. We have no righteousness in and of ourselves. And therefore, we're doomed, destined to wrath, destined to death, destined to die in our sins. If something's not done on our behalf, good news enters, gospel enters, Jesus enters. He is put forward on our behalf. So the question before you is, will you persist in sin, persist in death, persist in wrath when the clear message of the gospel has been presented to you, that Jesus has been put forward on your behalf? Will you turn from take your ladder off the crumbling wall of your own life and put your ladder on Jesus, the solid rock, on his capable of shoulders, on his strong and mighty shoulders. Will you sing the songs that we sing all the time? Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling, naked to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me savior or I die. Will you sing the songs we sing all the time? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Where is your hope this morning? Where is your confidence this morning? Where is your identity? What are you building your hope and life and identity on? Is it yourself or is it Jesus? Where is the confidence that your sins have been forgiven, that, that the problem of death has been solved, that you are truly alive, that the wrath of God has been turned away from you and turned towards Jesus? Where is the hope? Is it in your spiritual resume and activity? Or is it in Jesus' resume, in Jesus' activity, in Jesus' work on your behalf? Where are you trusting this morning? It's about location. This is what we talked about. Faith is a matter of location, not intensity. 
It's a matter of transferring trust from self to Jesus, of despairing of self and and entrusting our whole lives to him. That is what it means to have righteousness counted to us. He was put forward and his righteousness becomes ours and our punishment becomes his. In banking terms, are you you diversifying? Are you trying to trust in Jesus and plus a little bit of my own effort? Or are you all in on Jesus? This is the question that's put before us this morning. Is our hope in our own strength, our own accomplishments, our own possessions? Or is it, is it in ourselves? Or is it in something we've done? Or maybe, maybe, maybe it's not in something we've done. Maybe it's in something we've avoided. It's, God, it's not look at all that I've done. It's look at all that I haven't done. That's the problem of the older brother in Luke chapter 15. He, he's, look at all that I've not done, Father, and you haven't even given me a goat. He doesn't want the Father's love. He wants the goat. Where is your trust this morning? Here's a question that we have to wrestle with. Are you acting, am I acting as functional saviors of, savior of my life? Am I acting as the functional savior of my life? For some of us this morning, Jesus is really just a, a good moral teacher. Uh, he's just an accessory to my life. I was sharing the gospel with, with a Buddhist one time, and I just was like, you know, he was telling me what he believed, and I was telling him what I believe, you know, Jesus. And he's like, I love Jesus. Jesus is awesome. I don't know what to do with that. How, how, do, I me- how do I wrestle with it? He, what he was doing was adding Jesus to all the other gods that he worshipped. I, I, I've been in Buddhist temples, and, and you go in, and it's just, it's, it's discouraging and disheartening because they're trying to pick and choose the right combination of different gods to worship. And they don't ever know if they've worshipped the right ones enough. That, that shouldn't lead us to go, oh man, those people are terrible. That should break our hearts. But it also should raise, our, raise a little flag in our minds saying, that's kind of what I do. I'm trying to, by adding all these works to Jesus, I'm trying to come up with the right combination of my own spiritual resume to please God, to satisfy his wrath, to gain his favor. Guess what? You don't have to do that. Jesus has been put forward on your behalf. That is why God is favorably disposed towards you, because of Jesus. Some of us say, I don't, I'm not really into faith. I don't really need Jesus. He's just a good accessory. Listen, you have to understand that that doesn't mean you don't have faith. Your faith is just in yourself. Your hope and trust is in you, that you have done enough, that you have the right combination of whatever you need to have to, to be accepted before the God of whatever you're worshiping. Only Christianity says God has come to you in flesh and blood. Only Christianity says that he has revealed himself, that he has come to you. And not only has he come to you, he died on your behalf. Will you trust him? Will you cling to him? For the rest of us, and really the large majority of us in this room, many of us are going, well, that's a good message for them, man. That, that's, they really need to hear the gospel, Neil. That's, man, lost people, they need the gospel. Ha, <laughs> that's funny. Because you and I need the gospel. Because guess what? When you walk out those doors, immediately after this service, you're going to forget everything that was just said. Or you're going to be tempted to trust in a thousand things other than Jesus. You're going to trust in Jesus for salvation, but you're going to walk out of here and trust in yourself to defeat sin. You're going to walk out, you're going to trust Jesus. I know I need Jesus for salvation, but I don't really need him to reconcile my marriage. I got to do that on my own. Man, you, you are being crushed by the burden of self-effort. 
I know what it's like to be crushed by that burden. I've been in that situation. This is why we need the gospel daily. We need the gospel momentarily. We need the gospel at every moment. We have to preach the good news of what we're talking about. Jesus is the Savior that's sufficient to reconcile me to God. He's also the Savior that's sufficient to empower and strengthen and give me the ability to resist sin, to fight temptation, to live the Christian life. The gospel is not simply the good news to get into the kingdom. The gospel is the good news to live in the kingdom as well. We need it daily, momentarily. Some of you, some of us, we, we think, you know, I, I, I think I need Jesus, but the question before us is, is his, is his work finished? Is it sufficient to give you right standing before God? If not, then, then you too, you and I, will default to the position that we need Jesus to be saved, but we need to live our lives on our own. We're all, it's all up to us at this point. This is the same problem Rome had. This is the same problem that Galatia had. This is why Paul writes the letter of Galatians. Because they were being taught they needed Jesus, but then they needed Jesus plus something else. Listen, anything that we hold up in front of Jesus, anything we hold up in addition to Jesus, if we don't understand this, if you, we have to see this. As soon as you say, look, Jesus, at what I'm doing, then you are saying, Jesus, I don't need you. I'm sufficient. You're saying my hope is in me. My hope is in what I'm doing, not Jesus alone. And this is the gospel that we are saved by grace, that we are rescued by Jesus' work on the cross, and it's clung to by faith, clung to what? In Jesus, and he's also the power and the strength to live the Christian life. And this is why Paul says in Galatians 6, 14, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but new creation. Works don't count for anything, only the work of Jesus counts. And that's my hope, and that's my strength, and that's what I'll build my life upon. Is this true of you this morning? Do you know the freedom of what we're talking about this morning? Have you looked away from yourself and looked toward Jesus? Do you understand the good news of Romans 8, 1, that there is not, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Then you have the real answer for why you're here this morning. You're not here to worship you. You're here to worship Jesus. If those things aren't true, then you're here to worship yourself. And that's a question we have to wrestle with. Let's pray.